Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Melania de la Cruz is the kind of human everyone hopes to have in their life. The longtime publicist began her career in television production and journalism before diving deep into PR, running her own agency for a decade. She spent her childhood in Edmonton and St. Albert, the daughter of a Filipino father and Caucasian mother. At 17 years old, she left her small community life for the big city, working in nightlife and hospitality before following her soul to Australia. In 2008, she founded De La Cruz PR, working with clients such as Native Shoes, Vans Canada, Reigning Champ, Wings and Horns, and Stance, before going in-house as a director at Fallhaber Communications in Toronto, and now VP at Nine Point Agency. In this close conversation, we discuss her layered relationship with her biological father, her healing journey from personal trauma, how essential inclusion and diversity is in organizations, and how leaders can do the work, education about the cannabis industry, and more. Please enjoy this intimate conversation with the most beautiful human, the wonderful Melania Dela Cruz. Melania Dela Cruz, welcome to the craft. Hi, May. Twinsy. Twinsy. <laughs> I should say. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for being here. And we should probably explain the, the twinsy thing. <laughs> I think right off the bat so people don't get confused. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, I think the term came about we, or we started calling each other that years ago when we first met because we just had the same hair color back then. Mm-hmm. And, and we the both, same haircut. And the same haircut and bangs. Same haircut, bangs, same height. Both have Filipino origin. Yep. Both worked in the same industry mm-hmm. and both amazing people. I should add. <laughs> so therefore, twinsy. Yeah. <laughs> twinsy. So I... I just I love that Me too. connection that I have with you. I and know. it's still like I think we've been friends for what, like 15 plus years. Yeah, I think so. And I, it's been since day one. Since day one. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking I can't really pinpoint the moment that we met exactly. But I do know the reason why um, our paths crossed. And it was because you are in PR. Mm-hmm. And I used to be a fashion writer and mm-hmm. lifestyle writer. And so I was always getting pitches from you and coming to your events. And that's just how the magic happened. Yeah, exactly. I think um, from my memory, it was definitely work-related pitching you. But in an industry, you know, when you're so out there and is really based on image, it was really nice to kind of find your people um, mm-hmm. who really you could re- like relate with. And I think that we found kind of our crew within that time of the the scene, I guess, of yeah. like media and PR. Yes. Um, that we became this these really like genuine, authentic friends outside yes. of work stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we actually have this group that we mm-hmm. call the Five Outside, and we all ag- met during this time. And um, it happens a little less now, but for a number of years, we would take a trip every year, all five of us I miss girls. these. I miss them too. <laughs> and it was always somewhere adventurous. Mm-hmm. It was always something to do in nature. And it'd be like two or three nights of us gals. And just I think we had a lot of bonding sessions in those in those like experiences, too, because Mm -hmm. we're taking ourselves out of work and our day to day responsibilities and getting to know each other on a deeper level in nature, like doing something really cool. If it's we're going snowboarding or skiing or the crazy place on the island called Out Out There. There. (laughs) Out There Island. Out There (laughs) Island. Yeah. Do you remember remember our first night? We decided that we were going to sleep in that tent Mm -hmm. on the dock. Yeah. Leave the twinsies in the tent who don't know how to use the propane stove. (laughs) (laughs) And then also that night was a crazy rainstorm. Mm Yeah. Yeah, that was hilarious. And I think we woke up in the morning and like opened the tent and we're looking outside from lying in, in our beds and like a seal or something like a sea lion popped up. Popped up and killed a fish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were like, wow, that was what nature. Is that was nature at its yes. finest. Yeah. No, I think we've had a lot of really fun experiences together We have like that. Yeah. And I do appreciate them so much. Me too. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back in time. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your mom and dad. 
Mm-hmm. Wow, just getting right in there. Um, so my childhood um, was really interesting for me in ways now looking back, but I was born in Prince George. Uh, both my brother and I, Alex, were born in Prince George. We're only 13 months apart. Um, and my my dad um, was a drummer in a band. He actually still drums to this day. But he, so we kind of traveled around British Columbia as he was in his band. So I don't think we actually ever lived in Prince George, which was really interesting because people are always like, oh, you're from Prince George, but I don't even know anything about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that I don't really remember because I was so young and my parents got divorced when I was three or four. Um, and from there, my mom moved us, my brother Alex and I, to Edmonton. So I ended up growing in growing up in Alberta, in Edmonton, um, with my mom, who was a single mom for some years, um, which is a really interesting story too. Because as I've become an an adult, I've learned more and more about that period of time. That you know, like there are certain things that you don't explain to your kids when they're young about their lives because it's not appropriate or they don't have the capacity to understand. But my mom just recently told me um, like a couple years ago that we we lived in our van or our car. Mm. And I was like, what? I don't even remember, don't remember that. And mm. she said it wasn't for a long time, like maybe a night here or there where we were trying to get settled because she was just she was young. I mean, she was in her 20s and um, was trying to get established and, you know, had to find a job and a place for us to live. And, you know, I think the, from my understanding, I think the separation from my biological father was probably a little traumatizing for her having two young children under the age of four. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really fascinating. And I think like, you know, obviously looking back, those experiences must have impacted my view of the world in some way. Um, but everything was great. I mean, my mom is resilient and powerful and I have just like, she's so inspirational to me. So she moved us to Edmonton. We lived there, um, grew up and, you know, she created a life for us and she ended up meeting um, my adoptive father, actually. So her second husband, um, his name is Doug. And, uh, they got married and we moved to St. Albert, a little suburb outside of Edmonton. So mm. that's where I spent the majority of my like um, formative years, you know, from I guess how old was I when we moved there? Maybe like eight or so mm -hmm. until I was 17 and I moved out of my mm. parents' house. So that was a interesting experience growing up in now when I look back too, I can see it more clearly, but like a white middle class neighborhood suburb that was quite small and also, you know, in an area that didn't have a lot of diversity. And so I also must add that, you know, I'm half Filipino. So I did look very different. My brother and I looked mm -hmm. very different than a lot of people um, that were there. And also I'll also add that my mom is Caucasian. She's white. So there was a lot of like um, just uh, – maybe more of like an identity crisis growing up, like not really being able to relate or trying to fit into something that actually looked very different than me because mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything else that did look like me. Mm -hmm. And during this time as well, like my dad, my biological father wasn't in the picture. So I didn't see him from the age of eight to 18. Mm, I was going to ask if there was mm -hmm. a lot of Filipino culture in your world growing up, but it, it wouldn't no. have been that way. No, exactly. Because mm -hmm. my dad's from the Philippines. And so I would have you know, he would have imparted that on me, but he wasn't around. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, I didn't have that around. I mean, it's okay. I, it's just, it's what it is. Yeah. But um, it was interesting because when I moved to Vancouver when I was 19, and it's not like I was, I didn't ever see people that look like me, but I moved to Vancouver and I was like, oh my gosh, mm. there's so many people here that look like me. Right, right. It was an, a, a weird feeling because I was like in one way proud that I looked different, but also was like always trying to assimilate into another culture or another like physical appearance almost. Mm. Yeah, I know yeah. that feeling. Yeah, if of, you can relate to that. I can absolutely relate mm -hmm. to that. And so you didn't see your father a lot, but, you know, I, I guess now you, you guys do have a relationship, like you see him more often or talk um, more often. I'm just wondering what he was like from yeah. what you can remember as a child. 
Um, that's a good question. Um, I think like when I was a child, I there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of touch points. I think when you're a child, you just want to feel loved. So to me, when I was a child, I was always kind of like, I remembered him being fun because he would always come and take us at, like go shopping at the mall or go to West Edmonton Mall and <laughs> go in the, the, you know, like the amusement park or what have you. Um, so those are the things that I'd grasp onto because I would just, you know, I wanted that from him. Like, and I remember like, so weird. I don't talk about this often, but like lying to my friends saying, oh yeah, my dad's going to come and take me to the new kids on the block concert. Mm. Even though like I hadn't talked to him, I had no idea where he was. Um, and all of these things. So I think I just, you kind of like make something up. And now, you know, like I had resentment as a teenager, like where, where is he? Like mm -hmm. he isn't around. And then when I found him, I actually like found him myself. When I reconnected with him when I was 18, I found him. I found he was living in Calgary and I wrote him a letter, which I just found like a few months ago in this like box because it had was returned to sender because wow. it got sent to the wrong address. So I like read the, the letter that I wrote him mm. after all of these years, which was so fascinating. To How like, did it make you feel to read it? It made me feel, it, it made me feel sad a little bit for that person who was like definitely like trying to reach out. And it was very... Uh, it's very much like me today too, like very diplomatic in the way I was writing, like didn't want to make him feel bad, just was like, I'm good. Alex is good. I, I heard that you have, you know, a family. I'd love to meet you, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm. So um, I can't remember. I think it's like I called him on a payphone when I went to Calgary one time. Like, so, I mean, this was in the 90s, right? So we didn't have cell phones and all that kind of thing. And I ended up getting a hold of him and I, I ended up meeting him and he had remarried and had two kids, um, mm. two, two boys and who I'm, you know, I love them very much, uh, but they're quite a bit younger. Mm. So I think at the time I was 18 and Myron and Alexis were like three and four or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I reconnected that way. So like my, I think like now looking back as an, like an adult to where I was. I think I was just, I wanted the attention. I wanted mm -hmm. to know I was loved. I mean, that's very common. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that's like any kid could say that's not what they wanted out of, mm -hmm. um, uh, from any parent. Um, and then I think I just sort of realized he can't, he, he just can't be that guy, you know, like he, even though he's got, you know, all these kids, he just wasn't really meant to be that type of, father mm. which is unfortunate I mean I think for me I'm over it but like you know for the younger brothers for sure it might impact them um but I I've you know forgiven and moved on like a long time ago and that was e that was easier for me than holding on to it yeah it mm. always is right mm -hmm. it's the forgiveness part of it absolutely mm. yeah what's your stepdad like oh Doug he is um well, you know what I first I'll I'll preface all of this with I am so lucky that I had somebody who came into my mom's life, you know, that she fell in love with. They love each other very much. And she didn't want to have any more kids. And he kind of stepped up and was like, yeah, I'm here for you. And this is our family. And so he mm. really took on the role and he committed to it. Like he coached our softball games and hockey games and, um, he was around. It was hard though. Like I'll be honest and he knows this too. So if you're out there listening, <laughs> you know, um, it was hard. I don't know if I, like, I think I internalized a lot of things when I was, you know, that age, we fought a lot. Like it was really difficult. I, I think we're also just really different people. Um, so he probably had a really hard time with us mm. to be honest. And, um, we had a hard time with him. Like it's, I don't think it's probably very easy to be a parent anyway. Mm -hmm. And then to have all these like, you know, dynamics, dynamics, and layers and exactly sure. that are there. I, mm -hmm. I think it caused us a lot of grief, but we made it through and we love each other. And, uh, and yeah, I'm just grateful. Yeah. What were you like as a, a kid? 
and teenager. I know you love to sing and dance. <laughs> and I read somewhere that you wanted to be a mini pops kid and travel around yes, the world dancing and performing. I was obsessed with music. I mean, I don't know if it's like something that happens when you're like in the womb or something, but like, you know, my dad was a drummer in a band. Mm. So my, my mom was yeah. pregnant. She was like around music. And so I don't know if like when you're a child, you or like you're in the womb or something, those, I think there's got to be something yeah, there, I mean, right? And um, so I've always loved music. I remember the first tape I got was, uh, um, it was like Stacy Q and then Cindy Lauper. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to just put them on in my bedroom and dance and like sing. And there are pictures of me when I was younger, like dancing and singing. I just want, and I love the mini pops. Like I was like, that's the coolest thing. Like if I could be a mini pop, how do I do it? How do I audition? I remember like reading the back of cereal boxes, like looking for any like small print that would say like, here's how you, <laughs> you enter. here's how you apply. <laughs> Cause I just thought it was so cool. And mm -hmm. you know, I think now too, um, it's like impact the music and dance has impacted me so much. But I think like when I look back now, it was more about healing. Like, cause you know, um, you know, we've done sound bath healing sessions together mm -hmm. and those things re resonate with me a lot more than some other modalities of, mm -hmm. of, of healing practices. And, um, I think, yeah, probably my love for music and dance was really just because it offered me an expression to like heal or to connect. Mm. Um, and like any creative expression will do, I guess. Of course, yeah. But yeah, I was a, so I was a, I was shy. I was a really shy kid. I didn't know really how to ask for, for what I want or, or express myself in certain ways. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I was a, I'm a people pleaser. So that started at a very early age, but I was also a real lover and I think always wanted to help. Like my mom always says that, you know, you just, you always wanted to help when my brother was born and keep in mind, he's only 13 months younger than me. So I was a baby myself practically. Mm -hmm. I would go to him in his crib and just kiss his face over and over and over so much that he would grab my cheeks with his baby, like <laughs> sharp nail claws and like, like he would cut my face open basically right. with his nails. So I have like all these like hidden scars on my face from that, from that. still, um, just cause I was so obsessed. Like I want to help and like, I'd want to help mm. feed. And that's like something my mom too, like as I grew up was like, you know, you really should get into counseling or something like that. You are so natural at wanting to help people. You're an incredible listener. Thank you. Yeah. Although I feel like I've just been blabbing here. <laughs> Well, this, this is, this is your story. This is what we're Thank here you. to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say that's, I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of what I was like as a kid. Mm. I was shy, but loved the arts, mm -hmm. loved people. Yeah. And then it brought you to Vancouver. And it brought me to Vancouver. So I moved to Vancouver. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 17. I was like, I'm out of here. Cause they were like, if you're going to stay, you either have to go to university or you have to start paying rent here. And I wasn't ready to go to university. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. It was kind of like, I wasn't one of those people. I was like, I, I want to do this, you know? Um, and so I didn't feel like I want, I wanted to explore the world. Like I really wanted to get out of the small suburb city. Mm -hmm. Like I remember like driving around with my friends and being like, let's go to the city. And by the city, I meant Edmonton. <laughs> Because I could see all like the skyscrapers and the, the big lights. city lights. And mm -hmm. I like really wanted to get in there and experience it and feel alive and be a part of something. So um, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 17 and I moved into Edmonton with mm -hmm. some friends like you do when you're 17. Yeah. Like I don't even I was a baby. Like how do kids even move out at that age and even know how to like like do the basic things for myself. Yet I was living with like, you know, my best friend, Leslie, and of like a bunch of our friends. So it was a wild experience. Um, but we, I had a friend that moved, um, Heather, you've met he my friend Heather. She moved to uh, Vancouver before me and so kind of like paved the road for the rest of us to mm. move over and just see, like seeing that you could do it. Um, and I ended up moving to Vancouver when I was 19. And uh, it was a great decision for me. I needed I needed that space to kind of change and grow. Mm -hmm. And I moved here with the intention of going to the to Vancouver Film School. Like oh, I really yeah. I was really into um, 
like, I again, I was really into sound when I was 16. I took a, a, a summer course, um, a film course, and we got to make a little mini um, mini film. What do you call that? Mini film? Yeah. Uh, short film? Short film. <laughs> <laughs> mini that, film that. sounds nice to you. Mini <laughs> pops, mini films. Yeah, and I was just a mini too. <laughs> but I was a sound person on it. Yeah. So I learned how to do the sound and we learned how to do the editing. And I was just so fascinated by it. And I love that kind of like platform for storytelling. Mm. So I wanted to go to Vancouver Film School, but I had a job at the Royal Bank in Edmonton that I transferred over. It was just a kind of a random job experience that I got through a friend. And um, so I ended up working at the Royal Bank and just kind of was like flailing a little bit, like moving to a new city, trying to find like your friends and your people. And you're still kind of like growing up. I was only 19. So um, I didn't go to Vancouver. Vancouver Film School, unfortunately, but I did end up moving to Australia. <laughs> right. So there I was left. An Australia period. Yeah. So I mm-hmm. kind of I moved to Vancouver. I worked at the Royal Bank. I got into um, the nightlife scene. I worked as a coat check girl at Shine. Yeah. And before that, I worked at the Purple Onion. Right. So I worked there for three years, and and. Yeah, that was really fun actually because that got me into meeting like everybody. Um, like in the art scene and creative spaces because they're all coming out to nightclubs and meeting lots of really great friends and getting to see really cool shows just by, you know, proxy of like working in the industry. Um, and that was that was really fun. I mean, it's a wild time when you're that age. Of course. <laughs> right. What, what made you go to Australia? I think I just wanted a change. And I also had a dream of being a surfer. <laughs> I used to make these mood boards and like put beaches on. And I remember mm. it was like Car- like the model Carolyn Murphy yes, yeah. had a um, there was like a magazine article about her and how she was living in Costa Rica with her her husband and surfing and living this life. So dreamy. I know. I was like, I want to do that. It wasn't like that. <laughs> when I went to <laughs> Australia, I was like, OK, surfing's really hard, <laughs> like really hard um and what you know like how am I going to make money and all these things but I loved Australia it was really fun at that age I mean I would definitely love to go back and do it in a different way I mean I was there backpacking and um, hosteling yeah that kind of thing doing a surf trip traveling living with random people and then I went this was actually really interesting though about my move to Australia is that I moved to Melbourne or just outside of Melbourne with my dad's, my biological father's sister, my auntie, my auntie Anna, Joanna is her name. Um, And so she really filled me in on the Filipino culture and what my dad's life was like growing up in the Philippines. Like they were quite poor growing up in the Philippines in like the 50s and 60s Mm. and what his life was like before he left. Um, so it gave me a lot of insight to him and why he is the person he is and why he couldn't really be the father that we needed him to be. Um, and the trauma that he's experienced in his life. Mm. So that was really fascinating to me. And like the biggest takeaway from that whole time, I spent a year in Australia. Mm -hmm. So that was like the biggest takeaway for me. Yeah. So you had some gaps filled, not only in your own culture, like Mm -hmm. here uh, part of your birth culture, but mm-hmm. also, yeah, your your dad and totally. where, he, where he came from. I mean, at that point when I was there, I was still so connected, disconnected, sorry, from who I from who I was and my culture. Like I was so disconnected from the roots. I actually had a, a lot of I had inter- I had internalized racism. Um, So I wasn't even like, yeah, I'm Filipino. I was like, like learning about it as if it was like. Mm. not me. <laughs> mm. I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's actually really sad to admit that. Like I don't, I don't feel proud to admit that. It's just kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I am proud now. I'm like, I, uh, you know, getting to really dissect and, um, understand that internal internalized racism right. over the year. So anyway, that's, that was my experience in Australia. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm kind of jumping around here. But. No, that's okay. And then, <laughs> and then you moved back to Vancouver, mm-hmm. right? And you went to BCIT. 
I did, but I, so I moved back this, my, my like post-secondary education is really like, um, like peppered throughout mm. mainly like my working career. So I moved back. I had, so, I've had so many jobs. Like I, I've worked in the service industry, but I was a kid's dance instructor. I worked at a, a music school. It's not around anymore. It's called, it was called, um, Trevis Institute and you could learn how to be like a recording engineer again because I was like really into music and sound and was still trying to figure out how I could be involved in it so I worked at a school that actually taught this um and then I ended up getting a job at City TV oh I see City TV came before mm -hmm. BCIT yeah got it so I got this job at City TV working in the traffic and sales department which is not production so it's like basically you're like behind doing all the administrative stuff behind like what ads get played on television so I was like this isn't really what I want to be doing how can I get into a role that um where I could be more on like the production side of things. So I ended up going to BCIT and taking an announcing for uh, radio and TV course, <laughs> which I loved. I actually really loved it. Um, and it gave me some insights into the industry, but it was just kind of something nice to put on my resume mm -hmm. and kind of build from there. Yeah. And then you started producing. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to get a chance to work in the multicultural department at City TV with my first mentor, Prem Gill, who um, at the time she probably didn't know she was mentoring me, but it, she was in the way that she was leading in the industry. So she basically created the multicultural department at City TV. It didn't exist before her, as far as I know. And here she is, this woman of color, which is also very rare in the entertainment and broadcast industry at a senior level position, coming in and saying, hey, we need to like build diversity into our programming. So I was lucky enough to start my production, my broadcast production career with her and our small team um, at City TV. And we produced five shows. We produced a, a cooking show called City Cooks, um, a talk show called um, uh, Color TV, which Prem hosted, a realty television show, um, a, a global music video show called Ethnosonic, which was one of my favorites that was started by Trevor Chan. So it was an amazing experience. And then also it was kind of what impacted me most for the, the my career following that um, on the importance of diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in what we see and how we see ourselves mirrored back to us in the world or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's put a pin on that because I do have a question um, around that. But I wanted to go back to you producing and I want I'm curious to know what is it about producing stories and segments that um, spoke to you so deeply? I think I just like through doing them, you learn so much. Right. Like I was I was like I was more at that time in my career researching for interviews. So, for instance, with Color TV, that was a really interesting show. And Prem was the host of it. So we you know, I had to do research and do pre interviews with people who were like, you know, directors like Salman Rushdie and, you know, that we did a segment about eating disorders in the modeling industry. And you just learn so much from um, people who are doing all these really amazing things or bringing to light really important topics. And I just found through that medium um, of producing stories, either whether it's for like a radio or television show, so rewarding in so many ways that you get to offer a platform for someone to share their story or um, advocate for something that's really important to them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you continued that storytelling as you got into PR mm -hmm. and you had your own firm for almost, I think, nine or 10 years. Mm -hmm. So Dela Cruz PR. Mm -hmm. And um, you worked with a lot of great brands like Native Shoes, Raining Champ, Wings and Horns, um, Stance, Minimum, the list goes on. And then you went in-house at Fall Haber, which is a Toronto-based mm -hmm. PR firm. That's right. But you were the director for the West. Yep. Um, and now you're VP at Nine Point Agency. I'm curious to know in going from your own business and, and running your own agency into going to a more structured 
environment? Like, how did you have to adjust to that? Being your own boss versus now having to be in a more, um, yeah, structured Mm -hmm. environment. I mean, that's a great question. I think for me, I was ready to go into something that was I, where I didn't have the responsibility, the whole responsibility, because I did, I did, I ran my agency for nine years and it was a small boutique agency, but we had a lot of success. Um, we created a niche for ourselves um, in kind of like the streetwear action sports segment, although we did work with lots of different types of clients um, outside of that. But um, I think I was ready for, I, I wanted to, I was craving mentorship. Like I was tired of being the only person at the top. Um, so that was really great about kind of moving on to Fallhaber, but I think for both Fallhaber and Nine Point, which have been like the two, I guess, sort of where I've become more of an employee, um, there was still a lot of room for an entrepreneurial spirit, which is ultimately what I have. I don't think I could go somewhere where I couldn't have, where I couldn't have input in how the agency is like operated or run or the progress of the agency. Like Mm -hmm. I feel, I feel really blessed to have been able to work somewhere like Fall Haber, which gave me the ability to like expand to Toronto because that's ultimately what I wanted to do with Delacruz PR is I was traveling to Toronto and Montreal all the time, but I didn't have an anchor there. Mm. And so to be able to have that really like offered me a lot more kind of leverage for what I needed to do at the time. And um, Christine Fallhaber and Lexi Pathak, who are the two, the partners at Fallhaber were really great about like kind of passing me the reins to start the West Coast office and really kind of own it and run it like a mini business. So mm. I didn't really feel like it, it was um, that different from what I was doing. Honestly, I just didn't have the responsibility of the whole entire business on my shoulders. Mm. Um, and then when I had the opportunity to move over to Nine Point and work with our close friend, Tiffany, um, that was really great, too, because it was an opportunity to grow a business um, that was in its early stages or early idea and really be able to come and like, you know, collaborate mm-hmm. with some really cool people to build a progressive agency. Like yeah. that was really important to me. And I feel really proud of the, of, of what we've created. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've been making a lot of, um, moves in emerging areas like mm-hmm. the cannabis space. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, where's the industry right now? Like what exciting things are continuing to emerge with cannabis and well-being? Well, in the cannabis space, I mean, it's still quite new, you know, post-legalization, recreational legalization. So it's we're going into our third year now. And there's just so much opportunity because it was, you know, we're starting to see kind of new innovative products emerge from cannabis, whether that's like concentrates or, um, you know, beverages or edibles or topicals. And you'll just continue to see that kind of thing innovate. Um, I just had a really cool conversation with a woman who runs a beauty company Mm. who's actually using like the cannabis root um, in her products because it has all these really amazing kind of like healing, um, you know, beneficial properties for your skin, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's just like the possibilities are endless. If you really think about cannabis, the plant, I mean, you can do so much with it. It doesn't necessarily have to have, you know, um, the THC, CBD or other cannabinoids, like those plants can make hemp, which can make food and clothes and mm-hmm. it can go into your beauty and it can be a health regimen and it's a very diverse plant it's you can super extract diverse. A, lot, a lot yeah yeah I mean I, I I've um stopped by a few of the events that you've you've had at, at some mm. of your clients retail shops and even just learning about terpenes and all of the various kinds and what they do and how they smell it's it's a whole it's a whole nother world you know than it's, what we learned younger about well the thing that's the thing is like we didn't really learn anything when we were younger (laughs) exactly there was nothing out there really to kind of teach us it was like that's where you know it's like if you got really into it then it became this like super stoner stigma thing right um and there wasn't like there wasn't any education like out there really Mm -hmm. it was like here smoke this joint and get high (laughs) yeah whereas now it's like so fun to learn about what the plant actually 
like what it actually can do. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember being at Muse with um, you and mm-hmm. Tiffany was there as well. And that's where I was learning about the terpenes. And, you know, we were chatting with um, I, I forget his name, but he was he was really uh, charming and educational. And we were talking about, oh, you know, we're we're curious about something that will make us feel creative. And that's not something that way back when I would have thought of. I would have been like, oh, I, if I smoked a joint, I'd be tired. Yeah. But to know like, oh, no, you can take something and it's actually going to energize you and open oh, up your mind. Absolutely. I said that to my husband yesterday, actually. Like, it's so funny that like back in the day, we used to like smoke a joint and not even know what we were smoking. And it was just like, OK, I'll smoke this. Where now it's like we have this option and the knowledge to choose. So it's like, you know, for me, <clears throat> I want something that's going to make me feel energized because I'm already like a pretty calm, chill person. Like if I'm out going for a walk, I don't want something that's going to bring me down and make mm-hmm. me feel tired. I want something that's going to like make me feel happy and energized. Right. And light. And we know that we can have, I mean, maybe I was just so uninformed back in the day, but um, it, it's not like you could go somewhere and say like, I want, you know, I want this sativa or I want this, you know, mm-hmm. like it was just whatever was available to you from mm-hmm. like, you know. And I do think it's incredible. Some of the, the, um, is the retail, the really good retail shops out there. This, the floor people know their stuff. Like if you have questions, mm-hmm. they, they know everything and it's really impressive. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not a very surface level knowledge. Everyone is, is, you know, very knowledgeable. Yeah. About the plant. I think that's part of like just the way that the industry has been set up as well, because there's such a huge educational component to anything that you do in terms of selling or promoting cannabis. Um, it has to be as part of like regulations, but also if you're going to, if you really want to hit like, you know, new cannabis users or ones that haven't, that, that don't really know a lot, like you need to have someone there that can offer the information that is knowledgeable that you feel like you can trust. So I think a lot is invested in the mm. bud tenders. Right, right. Which is great. Yeah, the trust. Mm-hmm. The trust in it. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's really I, I love that it. You're, you guys are doing that and sort of mm-hmm. paving the way um, to help people understand It's really exciting. More. It's really exciting. I mean, like having been in PR for, you know, however long before getting into cannabis, it was like, okay, this is so exciting. This is something new. I, I you know, we don't know anything about this. This is like the first time we're doing this. Whereas like, you know, I've had a really, I'm really grateful for my career and the types of projects I've been able to work with and the brands, but it, you know, it kind of becomes repetitive after some time. Mm-hmm. So it was like fun to work in a brand new industry where you were like being challenged every day. Right. And it's a nice contribution, especially now. I mean, I know the industry is three years old, but you know, with everything that everyone's facing right now, it's nice to have like this other, um, tool for for well-being mm-hmm. and and healing mm-hmm. uh, which is definitely something I want to touch on is um I know that you went through some very traumatic things in your life in your younger years mm-hmm. and when did you start reconciling with all of that and how did you begin the process of healing I think it's over I don't think uh it was consciously uh but I think over time in little different areas of my life I because I did I did go through something pretty traumatic that sort of it's hard to go back and know like if that didn't happen to me would I be different I mean it's just hard so hard to know um but it was more when I moved to Vancouver and you know it was you're just kind of like you're growing as a person you're starting to like kind of peel back some of the layers I was really lucky to have a, a really good group of friends um, that were very um, encouraging about like going deep and kind of talking about it. So I think like the first step for me was just talking about it and like, like laying it out. Um, And then it takes time. I mean, counseling for sure. Like I counseling, I mean, I'm, I'm always, uh, like going to advocate for counseling cause it's, it can help anyone in any situation. But for me, that was really important, um, to have something, to have someone that was like a non-biased party, um, with, you know, specific tools to help me kind of navigate through 
some of the feelings. And this is like an ongoing process. It's not like you just do it and then it's done. It always is. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's been that's been a great um, tool for me. And then I think all the creative things that I do, I mean, just these were like unconscious things. But like, again, I'll go back to kind of like the music and dancing, like those forms of expression have always been something for me that I've been able to like, uh, at least kind of um, get out emotionally through a creative process. So you like feel your body because feeling in your that's body really important when dealing with these things. I remember I ha- was in this like I was in a dance class that once that my friend Carla was teaching, you know, Carla. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what happened, but I was like really emotional and um, went into this class and it was a really fun class. But I just broke down in tears like my body just like it just happened and Mm -hmm. I was so embarrassed I was like I don't know what's going on with me and she said Melania it's okay your body is telling you something releasing something this is actually really normal Mm. and it's actually great that your body is doing this so that was super helpful too Mm -hmm. um and then just doing you know really connecting to those uh I think it's more about committing to yourself so like if it's through journaling or a meditation or yoga practice. I mean, I know that these are obvious ones now these days, yeah. but back then it wasn't really. Um, and having the right people to talk to. And now more so, I have to say, like doing the sound bath healing um, with you has been very helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, like I, I don't know if that's like what it's like for everyone, but for me, it must be something to do with my connection to sound. Yeah, I, I think it's that. I think, um, you know, we we talked about this too, um, just generally about the disassociation that a lot of people have from their body and their actual emotions because mm-hmm. it's what this stressful world sort of forces us to, to do to get through it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of like all of the above, like the way that you feel the healing and the release through dance and your body and then the sound. So I think that's why it it was it worked. Oh, for it you was amazing. It was amazing. Like I thought. I mean, just so everyone knows, like I broke out in hives, <laughs> and then I went to go and see May, and she did the sound bath healing with me mm-hmm. session. Sound bath healing session. Yeah, sound, sound healing, healing, sound therapy, sound mm-hmm. therapy session. And like the next day, they started to dissipate. I mean, I still have them, but I just felt like an overwhelming sense of lightness. Mm-hmm. the next day yeah and the thing is that that stress um increases your your cortisol levels and when that cortisol goes up it can manifest physically so yeah it's so wild yeah, it is it's wild your your body is telling you all the time mm-hmm. what's wrong mm-hmm. so it's a it's a good thing that that it's uh, like you're that, listening it's like that book mm-hmm. when the body says no mm-hmm. by gabor mate oh yes i i've been watching more and more of the interviews that he's doing and and reading some of his things and he's an incredible person to to learn to learn from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I wanted to know the you know you and I talk about this in times that aren't recorded but um thinking back on the last 14 months what is one thing one one thing that you have discovered about yourself in the 14 months that have passed I've discovered that I, I need, I, I, okay. So I've always been like in PR or like in my job or even in my social life, I've been always very like obligated to all of the things like going out, traveling, seeing people, um, and then taking time for myself was always kind of like the side thing. It's like you do it when you can, Mm -hmm. but having to be like, I mean, you're like forced to stay home or, you know, not travel or can't see people. I actually have realized how important it is to slow down and take that time um, to kind of replenish. And, you know, especially for your mental health, I can't even tell you how many cycles of burnout I've had (laughs) in my life, in my career specifically. So, um, this kind of like forces you into a different type of behavior almost. Mm-hmm. So that was really, that's been a really great takeaway for me. It's been nice to have the space mm-hmm. to, to be able to slow down. 
Yeah, you just kind of have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I know you have been doing more of that and you've been trying to add more ritual into mm-hmm. your life mm-hmm. and lots of walks with Zephyr, her amazing, <laughs> her amazing dog who is huge but acts like a puppy. Yeah, we have to call it my dog. I mean, I have to do that to anyone <laughs> I talk to. <laughs> He's my baby. He is your baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a question about you and Age. Age or Adrian is Melania's husband. You guys have been together for nearly, what, 15 years? No, we've been together for 18 years. 18. We've just celebrated our 18-year dating anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we've been together for 18 years and then married for uh, maybe 10 years. Well, can we talk about your wedding? It was one of the most fun ones I've ever been to. Thank there you. was so much dancing and you wore this like stunningly bright red dress. <laughs> you went totally avant-garde. Yeah, I mean, I I think like the wedding thing was interesting because we we wanted to get married. I mean, we'd already been together for seven years by the time yeah. he proposed to me. So I was like, oh, this is oh, OK, we're going to do this. All right. Um, but we didn't want to have anything traditional. And I like just I, I actually bought a wedding dress, like a white wedding dress. And then I got home and immediately I was like, oh, I felt like I was getting a rash. I was like, I can't wear this. I cannot wear this. I don't know why like why I don't want to wear this but I don't want to wear it Mm. so for us it was really important to have like just we just wanted to have like a big party we just wanted to celebrate and we didn't necessarily want it to be like this is us we wanted it to be like this is us like us as a community it felt that way oh I'm so glad to Mm -hmm. hear that it was probably one of my most favorite days of my life yeah because of just all the amazing people that were there like we had such a great time and I had I like I was going to walk down the aisle. We were so lucky because we were able to do this, have like a lot of people at our wedding because we did it at our friend's beautiful home, um, Tim and Aaron Knight. And um, so thank you. Shout out to you. Um, but I was walking down the aisle, which was basically like their backyard. And I, and I was like, for a moment, I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, mm. I don't know what inside me, but I was like, I don't want to do this. And I said to my parents, because they were walking with me, I was like, I don't want to do this. Why don't we just skip this part and like just get into the party? And my mom was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like the music's on, everyone's sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, you walked down that aisle. <laughs> I did it. I did it. But as soon as I like turned the corner and saw everyone, I just like was so elated. I was like, you're here and you're here. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was the best. It was such a fun moment. And my dress, too. I was really excited about that. It was a Jason Wu, like, bright yes, red gown. bright red. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to ask about you and Age is what do you appreciate most about him and this life you've created together? Oh, I love that question. I think about this all the time. The thing that I appreciate most about him, and I don't know, like, anyone out there who's been in a long-term relationship maybe can agree with me, but it's not – it, it doesn't matter like you're going to have you're going to have fights. You're going to disagree and not everything is going to be perfect about the other person and, or for you for that matter. But the thing I'm grateful for most is just his unconditional support. So no matter what is going on in our lives, I know I can always count on him. And for me, that's the most important thing in a, in, in a relationship. If I didn't have that, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't work. Mm. I can see that between you guys. Mm-hmm. It's really lovely. It's, it's really beautiful. It's an unconditional support. Yeah. yeah for and sure. he, you can tell he really loves you. Oh, <laughs> I love him too. We drive each other crazy though. I like, let's talk about COVID and being at home with your partner <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Even when you have pretty, like plenty of room. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You know what? I just wanted to say this quickly before I, I forget it. Um, you and I have talked a lot about how much we like Toronto and, you know, last year we were like, how could we spend more time there? Maybe we can, you know, split an apartment. Like, mm-hmm. We were just going off about this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when you were talking about living in St. Albert. That's correct. Right? Yeah. And that you'd always see the big city lights and you wanted to be there. I don't know why I thought about our discussion about Toronto and how I still kind of see that sparkle in you and you oh, talk yeah. about a big city. I love Toronto. I mean, I just like it is it's a cool city it's just so different from Vancouver like you can't compare them so what it off so what like you know maybe that big city life that Vancouver doesn't offer me Toronto does and whatever the like beautiful nature 
um, that Toronto doesn't offer me, Vancouver does. So mm-hmm. it's like, I love the bi-coastal thing. Yes. Because <laughs> you be get the, the dream, be- right? Because mm-hmm. you get the best of both worlds. And actually that was my life for many years going yeah. back and forth. And not only just like the big city, but the, the community in Toronto is amazing. Like I just, I miss my people there. Mm-hmm. I think there's so, there are so many people doing cool things. I just find it's like way more diverse in terms of like what you see too, in terms of like cultures and ethnicities, ethnicities food, food um, and even just the art scene there is a little different. It's not to say that we don't have something good in Vancouver. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say that one's better or mm-hmm. worse than the other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love Toronto. It's yeah, like but- a second home to me. It's very cool. I mean, the time that I spent there in in the fall on my life sabbatical, I um I just thought that the people were really really open. At least in my experience, you know, everyone was willing to talk. Everyone was was doing interesting things. So, yeah, shout out Tor- uh, shout out to Toronto. It's, yeah, Toronto. It's it's a, it's a cool city. <laughs> we miss you. <laughs> we'll be back. We'll be back. <laughs> So let's unpin something that I pinned earlier. And this okay. was this is about inclusion and diversity in the workspace. Mm, and I know mm-hmm. that, as I was saying, you're really involved in that in the agency you've been, at, in, uh, been in. If you were going to share the most essential foundational things a leadership team needs to address when it comes to inclusion and diversity in the workplace, what would you say? The most essential things that we yeah. can do? Yes, that we can do. I think at openness, first of all, like creating trust with your team to have open dialogue is very important because um, you need to have the space um, and for people to feel safe to address concerns that they might have or to come to the table with ideas. Um, And the like the diversity and inclusion conversation is more than just like what you see optically. It really is how you operate as a company and um, how you are like how you involve that in your community. And I would say um, it's you always have to have it top of mind. It's not just for like the, <laughs> you know, performative action of it, obviously, but it's also for like just a better business you know it's not it's it's like diversity of ideas diversity of experience diversity of perspective like if you have more diversity at your table you're gonna have more progress in your business in my opinion so we've been doing a lot of um diversity and inclusion training um not done by me we hire uh qualified people like to do it. We've done uh, Rachel Ricketts spiritual activism mm-hmm. workshops, which are really great if anyone wants to do those. They're just the webinars that you can purchase and do them. Um, I think our team got a lot out of doing them and also doing them together. Mm-hmm. Um, the real eye openers, because you really get to uncover um, people's experiences with racism or um, not or or their own racism. Like, you know, we have just mm-hmm. being honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that affects the workplace. And then also how we can develop more diversity in like in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In PR, I mean, PR is very, first of all, like very female driven. So there's like a bit of an imbalance, a there. bit of an imbalance mm-hmm. there. And then also like the faces and backgrounds that you see of people coming into PR. So and like I have actually had this conversation with um, a colleague of mine from Toronto who was like, well, you know, someone I used to work with, it was like, well, we don't get a lot of those applicants. And I was like, okay, well, that's okay. So if that's what you're saying. Um, it's like, you have to ask yourself why and what can we do about it? So a lot of times it's because there's a barrier there, right? So the barrier is a maybe... Like an invisible barrier? Invisible barriers, like where maybe... Um, some people can't afford to get the education they need to get into the industry. So there's that barrier. That's an actual barrier, right? Um, and then, you know, over time, I think this, like, people's minds are changing about this or, like, perceptions are changing. But even, like, 
you know, getting applications with, you know, difficult names to say or things like that. It's like, those are the, those are like real barriers that happen, not just in our industry, like in all Mm -hmm. industries. But my point was that if we're not seeing it, then how do we change it? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's our job. Mm -hmm. It's our job to uncover the barriers and to, and to give space and to support and to take on some of the labor and to take on the labor. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's been uh, a, a wild year. I have to say, yeah, um, in that space, but very much needed and and very powerful. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's progress? I think there's progress. Some days I feel like I think most people do, um, a bit hardened, or um, when you don't see when the progress is like small, incremental. Sometimes you see it take a step backwards. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like we watch the news. And we see a lot coming from America, right, of, you know, police violence against um, people of color and black and indigenous folks. So it's kind of like that. It's hard. It's Mm -hmm. hard to see see those things and know that they're still happening, even though like all this really good work is going on. Mm -hmm. But I do. I believe in the progress. Yeah. Yeah. I think that even the fact that we're talking about it right now is progress. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it has to start with dialogue somewhere between mm-hmm. two people and having that continued conversation with with others. You know, I, I read um, something yesterday, uh, Lady Gossip, and mm-hmm. uh, I think she's done a really fantastic job in, in looking at her own self and where she could do more work. Mm-hmm. And she um, had an article the other day about Daniel Kaluuya. Mm-hmm. I hope I said his name right. Yeah. And um, him winning uh, the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And during the press portion, there was a Caucasian journalist from, I think, South Africa that mixed him up with another um, African-American actor. Mm-hmm. And that you you could see the frustration in his face that it, it happened. And that it happened in the mo- most, what should have been the most joyful, one of the most joyful moments in his life. He had to deal with a microaggression. Mm-hmm. And these are the things that so many of us don't understand. Oh, yeah. Should know are happening so that we're more aware and we can do better. Yeah. And it's about um, putting yourself in a place where you're exposed to that, like where you're actually seeing what's going on by reading those things, mm-hmm. by following the accounts that will share that information, you know, like because um, otherwise you don't mm-hmm. you don't know about it. And it happened and it's very real. And actually, like, I have to say, just I, I don't know if you can relate to this in any way, but being a person of color, like I am half, but I definitely look I like I'm more Filipino that I've had so many microaggressions mm. towards me over my whole entire life. Like and I didn't know I didn't even know that, you know, that was a thing until these mm-hmm. last couple of years. Um, but now when I look back, I'm like, oh, my God, that's what that was. And that's why it made me feel so bad. You know, like, um, I just have so many examples. So I don't know if you do too, but it's like so a recent important. one. Do you really? Mm-hmm, do you yeah. want to share it? Yeah, I I can share it. I was uh, in Granville Island with Pearl, our friend Pearl Lamb, and I had parked in one of the parking lots. It was a bit of a, a tight spot. And uh, I was parked next to a Range Rover. And as I was backing out, Pearl was in the car beside me. Um, the female Caucasian owner had come back to her car and, you know, like I said, it was a tight parking lot. And as I was backing out, she stood by her car and she watched me back out and (laughs) made sure that I didn't hit her car. And I didn't really realize until halfway through, I was just backing out like right. I normally would. I'm, I don't think, knock on wood, I'm a, a pretty good driver. And <laughs> I've, I've, I've been in your car. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, halfway through, I just turned to Pearl. I said, is she making sure I don't hit her car because she thinks I'm Asian and I can't drive? And Pearl was like, yep. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And then after I pulled out of the lot, she got in her car. <laughs> wow. Really? Mm-hmm. That's never happened to me before, but wow. Yeah. I mean... 
I feel lucky that I haven't had a ton of experiences like this and maybe like a hand, less than a handful, but that was the most recent one. And I felt so, I felt really jarred by that one. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if like maybe before you would have even noticed something like that or notice it, but you wouldn't have, you wouldn't be able to like, like that's, label it as like, yeah, you know, this is what just happened. Yeah. You can't, that's the thing though, is now that we're like learning all of these things, we're unlearning other behaviors where you like, you know, we talk about how you make yourself small so that you don't like mm-hmm. make the other person feel uncomfortable because this is happening. I mean, I I like for a long time, I've been very like outspoken. So like if I see something, I say it. But like I remember being somewhere and like it, my husband and I were traveling somewhere. We were staying with someone at this like resort in like the middle of B.C., and we were just hanging out and one of the staff members came in and like used a racial slur for something and like no one said anything. And there mm. were only like six people in the room and it wasn't talking about me. It was talking about someone else that worked at the thing. And I was like, excuse me, what did you say? Say I was like, what did you say? And he said it again. And I was just like, no, I was like, wow, mm-hmm. that's totally racist. And like everyone was so uncomfortable and like didn't say anything. But I was like no, I don't know if I can swear on here, but I was like, fuck, fuck, no. (laughs) Like, I'm not, that's not okay. And if you don't know, that's not okay. I'm going to tell you that's not okay. Mm -hmm. And like, everyone was uncomfortable, but I was just like, and even after I did, I apologize. Like, sorry guys, but you know, like, why do I have to apologize? Mm -hmm. He ended up leaving. He had really small hands too. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Yeah. (laughs) But it, 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 it is, you know, when you are dealing with these types of situations and, you know, even um, the, the example that I just gave you that I just experienced, a part of me felt when I made the realization of what was happening, I was so angry and I wanted to roll down my window and call her out. But then at the same time, I'm like, it's not worth it. And it's sort of like, well, then how how am I standing up for myself? And it just becomes that... Well, those what things are do? hard too, you, right? Because you're like, because they're microaggressions, that person person could be like, oh no, no. you you misinterpreted that. Exactly. Right? I'm like, well, and that was a thought. Like, what if I did roll down my window and say something? And she was like, no, that's not it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I feel and then you're like, horrible. Oh, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, what, but pick also your, pick your battle, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but yeah, just, uh, yeah, very... It's a touchy time. It's a touchy time, but so important because mm-hmm. now we're able to have a voice about these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can see it from both sides, like being a person of color, but also being white. Mm-hmm. I ha- It's like kind of that's a part when I was going through like when we've been going through all this diversity and inclusion training and like even the spiritual activism courses like real. I actually had to do both the courses, like the one for white people and the one for people of color. Mm-hmm which is like, okay, like doing double the work. I mean, I'm fine to do it, but um, it's like a double-edged sword kind of because you kind of, you feel shitty on one side for your racism and then you feel shitty on the other side for your like internalized racism. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's, but it's so necessary. It is really so necessary. necessary. Mm. Yeah. And well, I- like for the next generations, for, for them to understand. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I just have... Two more questions for you. Okay. Um, I feel like I've been rambling on a lot. So thank you (laughs) for your patience. Um, One is just kind of a a random question I I thought of of at home. And, you know, I just think of all the conversations that we've had over the years of of friendship. And we talk about, you know, inner and outer beauty and people's soul. Um, How would you define someone who has a beautiful soul? Oh, in so many ways. I mean, a beautiful soul, that's really just, I think, kindness and compassion. It really comes from how you treat people um, and how you make people feel. It's about inclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kindness and compassion kindness is beautiful compassion. to me. Mm, I agree. I agree. My final question mm-hmm. that I ask everyone Um with what you do, what is it that you'd like to leave behind in the world? Oh, the legacy question. 
I'd I'd like to leave behind. Uh, that's such a good question, May. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. I'm. I mean, I think about this a lot actually because you know at this time of life, I'm. You know, we're always going through different transitions of life, and I'm. I feel like I'm going through one right now, like in my early 40s, and kind of shifting priority perspective. And, and as you get older, like that legacy question becomes more and more real because you're like faced with your, you know, mortality, like you're not going to be alive forever. So what is it that you're doing here? So for me, I think like purpose is really, I want to leave. I, I, I'm, 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 I'll go back to this again, but like my purpose is to help people. So I want to leave behind, um, a, hopefully a trail of um, like acceptance and community. Like, I don't know if that's too vague <laughs> at this point and Hey, I'm still figuring it out. But um, to me, that's really important. Like the legacy I want to leave behind is of bringing people together. It's kind of like what we were just talking about of how we make progress. Mm-hmm. So people, um, are 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 able to like have at passing it on like paying it forward like it's not just about me so it's like what I leave behind is what I I I leave behind for others mm. to then pass it on so mm-hmm. I want to leave behind like goodness kindness inclusion mm-hmm. compassion empathy yeah. I want to be known for those things mm. like if you were to talk about me I know some people are like oh yeah she she was you know that they left behind like this billion dollar business or they were on you know Oprah or something like that yeah but really like um I just I want to leave behind a legacy of love Mm. well you do already (laughs) have all of those things and you leave behind love and you're a beautiful soul twinsy Thanks, Twinsy. Thank I hope you. hopefully that was interesting. No, that was great. <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is always really fun, and um, you make everyone feel so comfortable. Oh, um, I, I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.